Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Medical Mindset Podcast. Today, we are interviewing Sabina Spigner, a soon-to-be gynecologist. We hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining and coming on to the Medical Mindset Podcast. Um, Do you mind maybe introducing yourself, talking a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Sabina Spigner. I'm currently a fourth year medical student at the University of Pittsburgh. I actually graduate in 10 days or 11 days. Um, and and um, I am going into OB-GYN residency at Northwestern in Chicago, which I'm really excited about. Um, I I do a lot of advocacy and research for queer health, so LGBTQ healthcare um in the form of like improving medical education um and the curriculum that med students receive and then also um looking into how we can improve patient care for that population um by looking into like the training and the type of education and knowledge that providers have um so that's kind of like my main passion in addition to uh, sexual and reproductive health which is why i'm going to ob-gyn um and then on the side i also love to mentor um and and help out um people who are interested in going into medicine because I had a little bit of a circuitous route from undergrad to med school, which I'm sure we'll get into. <laughs> well, congratulations on your fourth year. Thank I'm you. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. the first question I want to ask is what is the impact you want to leave on the medical world and how have you been pursuing that goal? Yeah, I guess I kind of jumped the gun and, and dove into this a little bit, <laughs> but um, I, I'm really trying to make an impact on um, the underserved patients and especially like queer and black and brown patients um, and by lending my voice and my platform as a physician to them um, to help them advocate for themselves, but then also to not necessarily put the onus on patients to to advocate for themselves, but to ensure that the training that we're giving to students going into the field as a physician um, and then people who are already physicians, making sure that they all have adequate training and knowledge and also know how to provide inclusive, um, welcoming healthcare to queer uh, patients and to to black and brown patients. So that's the impact that I hope to leave through research and through education. Um, And then I've been doing that through, like as a med student so far through my research, Um, And then I also give a lot of talks on the topic. I was the executive director for Medical Student Pride Alliance, which is the national um, queer medical student organization. And so we we do a lot of like opportunities for queer students to help them um, basically just to help improve representation and access to healthcare for queer students, because the more queer doctors we have, the hopefully better the healthcare is for queer um, patients. And so that's been my goal so far. That sounds great. And I actually uh, heard your segment on NPR and that's why I wanted to reach out because I was like, we were very curious about your research and we were wondering if you could maybe go more into depth about your research and how it's kind of taken into effect like currently. Yeah, um, so I've done a, a handful of projects um both locally and nationally i think um, some of the projects that i've done related to medical education have been easier to lead to like a tangential change more quickly um and so 
what that looked like for me was I have looked into like the type of um, curriculum that my school provides and that schools nationally provide related to queer health. Um, and then I've been able to take that data and, and advocate for improvements to lectures at the school and, and kind of advocate for where um, changes should be made at schools across the country. Um, I've also been fortunate enough to partner with the local hospital system and do research there and, and um, work with them using that data to improve the resources and quality of care that we provide to queer patients here. And that's something that I hope to continue to do no matter like where I'm located. Um, but I really, I really love qualitative research. I think a lot of folks, especially younger people think of research as like being in a lab using a pipette, working with like Petri dishes. <laughs> And that is a type of research that certainly, you know, brings a lot of people joy, but that was not ever my my type of research. I tried it and I thought it was kind of boring. Um, I didn't think research was for me. And then I learned more about qualitative research, which is working with the community, working with, um, you know, working with the power of the story and the power of the the data that's in front of you, um, not necessarily in numbers and in, in cells, but in um, what you can see on paper and what the patient outcomes are. And so I like to use that data um, to inform really tangen tan tangible, quick changes um, rather than slower acting, very important, but slower acting basic science research where you're working with cells and such like that, that could lead to really massive changes, but way down the line. Um, the joys of my research is that I can usually use that data and turn it around pretty quickly to say, this is something that we need to be doing. Um, so let's do it. And, and it ends up leading to impactful changes. Uh, what inspired you to really take on that outlook on research? Like, I guess, more specific question would be like, how has race identity impacted your career goals and experiences? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's everything for me. So I grew up in Southern California in a very like white and conservative area, um, not being white, not being conservative and also not being wealthy had an impact on me being one of the few um, black kids like in my schools growing up. And um, when I learned that I was queer, um, that further added to that, the intersectionality of being Black and queer in a place that um, is not the most friendly towards either of those identities was pretty difficult for me as I was navigating high school. And so when it came time to look for healthcare, um, I didn't understand that that would play a role in the type of care that I would receive from providers. And so unfortunately, I experienced some um, discrimination like mild, you know, all things considered, but still discrimination nonetheless. And that led me to think, is this a unique experience or is this something that um, unfortunately a lot of queer patients are experiencing? And I found the latter to be true. And that ultimately was what motivated me to kind of go down that public health road and, and go down that chain of that becoming my entire like passion and, and reason for entering the field of medicine. I'd always known I wanted to be a doctor, but that kind of gave me like that extra power or that extra like fire and um, really gave me that niche of passion that keeps me going. Yeah, and I mean, that is an amazing story. And I believe that there is still a lot of injustice in healthcare and the work that you're doing is going to affect and help so many people. And I was actually wondering if you could maybe go into more of like the science of your research Research, kind of how the identity of the doctor also affects like like-minded patients and like patients of the same orientation 
Yeah. So um, I haven't done that research explicitly, but I have read and, and used that research to inform my own. Um, and there's a lot of data to support that when patients, especially patients um, of color or, or queer patients have providers who identify like them or who look like them, um, their care and their outcomes are usually better than than if they don't have those providers. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this. You can consider comfort to be a reason. You can con consider like cultural alignments and understanding standing to be a reason. Um, systemic racism and, and individual biases also can play a role in that. But overall, the data is pretty overwhelming to support that um, because of that, we should definitely be working towards improving representation in medicine and, and our, in our physician workforce. Um, so that way patients can have the option to see somebody who identifies like them if that's something that they wish to have. Um, currently, statistically, there's only like 5.5% Black physicians, I believe. And then if you boil that down even further to Black female physicians, it's something like 2.2% or, or smaller. So and, you know, if you think about queer physicians, it's probably along a similar line. And, um, you know, we know that nationally, the population of folks who are black and brown and or queer is definitely higher than 5% or 2%. So um, with that data supporting improved care and improved quality or improved patient care outcomes, um, you know, should come the natural next step, which is we should improve the, and increase the representation that we have in the in the workforce, which there's a lot of things that go into doing that. Um, but that's ultimately what my goal is and what a lot of people who do similar research's goal is. Yeah, I really appreciate that message. And I'm really happy that there's people like you who are really spreading it to the world. So I was wondering, like, how did you conduct your research and how are you able to get it on a platform to share it with more people? Um, I have... I've done a lot of research through my um, public health black background. So I got a master's in public health. And through that, I was able to um, work with some folks who helped me get connected with people in the field of LGBTQ healthcare. It's a pretty small world. Um, and so with those connections, I was able to um, have more access to like conference opportunities. And then when I got to med school, I used those connections as well to um, work with like hospital leadership and, and med school leadership um, to take my data and my research um, and turn it into actual improvements and changes um, because I had the connections and the network behind me of the other leaders in the field of healthcare. And so I think like my biggest advice for that is like connections really matter and networks really matter in any field of health. Um, and when it comes to research, those can be really important, especially if you're in a field as small and niche as like LGBTQ medical education or healthcare. Um, you know, there, there's not a lot of us doing that work. And so being tapped into that community and, and kind of helping uh, push my research to come out um, and be like more forward facing has been helpful. And then also I use my organization, Medical Student Pride Alliance. We do a lot of research and that's a national facing organization. And so we've had invitations to speak at conferences and have um, our platform elevated through through national conferences and, and smaller conferences as well, which is always helpful. That's great. And I know you've talked about kind of the problems you've seen in the medical world and kind of um, the injustices that you see but like 
upon entering the medical field, what's something that like surprised you? That something probably you didn't know or something that you would like to delve into further? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, it, it surprises me that there, you know, there are lessons still to be learned by people who've been providing care for a long time. So um, and I think it's a generational thing too. But I think for me, it really surprised me that like not all doctors are as like compassionate and like empathetic and whatever as like you might think. Um, not not because they're like bad people, just because of like burnout and the system really, really forces you to be like pretty short and curt when it comes to like your everyday so you can get all the work done. Like doctors are super stretched thin. And I think what surprised me once I started working on clinical rotations was how being stretched thin really impacts um, your ability to provide great patient care. Um, you know, I'd read about it, I heard about it, but then actually like being in the setting and experiencing it for myself. And now that I'm going to be entering residency, I'll, you know, obviously be experience that, experiencing that even more. Um, that's something that really surprised me. And, and it's kind of sad because it's like, you know, we all go into medicine, hopefully to provide really great care to our patients and um, compassionate, empathetic care. But then the system kind of like stretches us so thin and, and asks us to do so much that we're forced to prioritize um, some things over others. And, and, and I was surprised to see that patient care was something that um, took a hit during that. And so I hope to, to not really follow that pattern and and I know that again it's a generational thing and, and some folks um, prioritize it more than others but that's something that surprised me and isn't something that's um you know unique to my experience I think a lot of folks are aware of that and doing their own research on that on that whole topic of burnout yeah I think burnout it's like it's a widely known topic but not widely it's not very detailed when you look into it so I know like a lot of students even like professionals they face a lot of stress even in like imposter syndrome I face that a lot so I was wondering yeah. like yeah so so I was wondering like what advice you would give to them the people with burnout yeah burnout imposter syndrome just like any mental health or uh, yeah um I think I've experienced it thus far mainly as a student. So like going from undergrad to two grad schools to, and then now to and through med school, um, I've definitely experienced burnout and definitely imposter syndrome. Um, for me, I I had to learn to prioritize like myself and, and my mental health, which is really hard in a system and field that doesn't really talk about that ever. Um, you know, you have wellness days in school and such, but a lot of them are like, do yoga or come see these puppies, but that's never really addressing the underlying issues, right? So um, my advice is to kind of figure out what fills your cup, figure out what you need to rest and recharge. Um, I'm a I'm an introvert through and through. And so I knew that like going to social events um, wasn't going to help fill my cup. It was actually going to do the opposite and so I I spend a lot of time recharging on my couch I love being a couch potato I'm proud to be a couch potato um we should reclaim that because it's it's not um you know you don't always have to be up and running it's it's good to relax and and I think it's important to be able to advocate for yourself so um I have a therapist I go to therapy like every two weeks um I'm on mental health medications for anxiety um, I have ADHD, which I only recently got diagnosed with a couple years ago, and that was really um, 
life-changing for me. And I think that the more you understand about yourself, the more you're able to address things that could lead to burnout or at least recognize the signs that you're entering burnout. Um, and then you're better able to help yourself when you are in burnout. Um, in terms of imposter syndrome, I'm still figuring that out myself. <laughs> I have terrible imposter syndrome. It comes and goes. There are moments when I'm like, I, I, I belong here. Like I'm so confident. Like I can do this. And then, you know, entering residency now, I'm like, I'm going to graduate in 10 days and be a doctor. Like who, who signed that paperwork. Right. So I think imposter syndrome is something that everybody experiences. Um, and if they don't, if they say that they're, they don't have it, they're lying. Um, and you kind of have to remind yourself of why you belong there. And, and I just let, um, you know, my patient care speak for itself. So I just kind of put one foot in front of the other and charge along, which I guess is how I've gotten this far. <laughs> yeah, I know, like a lot, like so many people, like even like even high school students, they don't realize like how far they've come. They don't realize that they're here because of the accomplishments that they've made. And they just kind of live in the past and don't really kind of like work towards the future. And I feel like, and I feel like, um, imposter syndrome just kind of like stems from that I know I've faced that a lot and kind of going on the path of like high school uh like what did you do in high school to like what clubs did you join your grades standardized tests that made you more prepared for college and for medical school yeah that's a great question um in in high school I I did a lot so I did all AP classes um I knew that I wanted to go into medicine um, and I also knew that I wanted to go to the East Coast um, for school. So I was really like aiming for, honestly, my number one goal was to get into Harvard, like since I was five years old, which it's so, I don't know, I'm not going to say anything about that, but I didn't go to Harvard and I'm, I'm, I'm very okay with not having gone there. I'll just keep it at that. Um, but having had that, you know, youthful passion to go there uh, motivate me along I did all the things that you're supposed to do to get into a school like Harvard and so um, I I took all the AP courses I took um, I international baccalaureate like IB courses if you have that um, I was in the marching band I played saxophone um, I was drum major I also did MUN uh, modern United Nations which I loved I loved learning how to public speak I loved doing it um, I highly recommend that if that's something that you're interested in like we had a I don't think my school had a debate club but um that was like the closest to it and, and so I was like I'm gonna do this because I like to debate people and and also we learned how to do public speaking through that so um I, I think doing all of those things like I did a lot of leadership um I also volunteered like all the time outside of school um, at local centers for uh, I did like hippotherapy which is like horseback riding therapy for patients with physical and mental disabilities um, I did that all throughout high school too and so I think just I was just always on the go in high school I was exhausted I, I, I my mom would often find me like asleep at my desk at like 4 a.m because um, I'd just come home from band practice at like 9 and still hadn't done all my work but um I think what kept me motivated was definitely the the passion that I had to go to the East Coast, but then also um, I just liked doing it. I loved school. I loved the band. I loved being part of all the organizations I was a part of. Um, and so I think finding things that, again, bring you joy is really important to keep you going. 
Um, but looking back on that, I have friends who, so I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania. I, I didn't mention that earlier, but I have friends who um, made it to, you know, Ivy League schools who did like half as much as I did and, and had such a better like mental health outcome than me. And and so I think there there's a way to do everything. And I definitely took the um, the way of like just committing myself to literally everything I could, but that's how I am. I, I overcommit all the time. I still do it. Um, I think that's part of what got me here is that I, I just do a lot all the time, um, but you don't necessarily have to. I, I just recommend committing to something that um, you're passionate about and, and, and running with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like ambition is sometimes like a double-edged sword because on one hand you're getting out there, you're doing all these cool things like model UN. Uh, we have that club in our school, but uh and Ari and I aren't in it, but one of the clubs we do have is one called FBLA, and that has definitely been really important in building, like, communication business skills, yeah. but then, like, on, on the other hand of ambition, you also get, like, burnout, which I know we talked about. It's a really big problem, and it can just get, like, really exhausting, like, because it, it gives you, like, tunnel vision. You're so focused on that one goal, and the minute thing comes in, you're like, oh my gosh, it's not gonna work. Yeah, yep, exactly. So the other question I was going to ask was, what were some of the struggles you faced on entering college in medical school? Mm, yeah, so college, I had a really hard time with. Um, I, I moved from California to Philadelphia. Uh, it was the first time I was away from my home. It was the first time living in a, in a big city. Um, and it was the first time that I didn't have structure in my life. So now that I know that I have ADHD, it makes a lot of sense why I struggled. But I thrived in high school. So you'd ask me about my grades and standardized exams. And I had, I was basically like salad Victorian or whatever, like the number two position was because I absolutely could not conquer physics and I got to be in physics. Um, but apart from that, I, you know, I did okay on tests. I wasn't ever, um, you know, a stellar standardized test taker, but I did good enough on the SAT um, and the ACT to get me to where I was. Um but there was always structure in high school, right? You have homework, you have deadlines, you have the clubs and all these things to keep you going and you have to show up to them. But when you get to college, you you have, you know, a calendar of events that you're supposed to go to, but nobody's, you know, on you about it. You don't have to go to them. Um, and sure, there's homework, but there aren't as tight turnarounds, right? Like in high school, you have like a paper or this activity due tomorrow. And in college, it's like in three weeks, you have something due. And I think that was the first time that I'd ever really experienced that lack of structure. And um, it really impacted my ability to stay on it. Honestly, it was hard for me to balance still doing all the things that I was doing. Um, I was still, you know, seeking leadership actively. I was still um, trying to volunteer and shadow for, for medical school. Um, but then also I was taking six courses every semester because I was pre-med and, um, and I think where I went, where I really struggled was balancing how do I study with how do I do all the other things that are required of me to eventually get into medicine. Um, and so it took a hit. Like I graduated college with a 2.55 science GPA and a 2.81 under and 2.81 like overall GPA, which is not good enough to get into med school by any means. Um, and so because of all that, I had to end up thinking about how else I was going to get to med school. Um, and that led me to my multiple graduate degrees. Um, and in grad school, I, I kind of, I got 4.0s in both of my grad school programs. Um, but I 
again, it was, they were smaller programs. They were more structured. Grad school is different. Um, and I also just had like pure fear, like, at, like compelling me to do well. Cause I was like, these are literally my second, my only shot to get into med medical, medical school is to like do well in these programs. And so I was just like, you know, just kind of hyper-focusing on like studying. And all I did was study for those years of grad school. I just studied and then I volunteered and I studied and I volunteered. I did nothing else. I didn't care about anything else because I knew that my one goal at the end of this was getting to med school. Um, now that I know that I have ADHD, everything makes sense <laughs> about why I struggled so much um, and, and the different ways that I learn and such. Um, but I think I, I really struggled because I'd never needed to ask for help for in high school and when it came to college um by the end of it I realized I don't know how to do this on my own and so I had to figure out how to ask for help yeah I mean like a transition from high school to college is like big because you're independent now you're like in charge of your study habits like even just like meal prepping and like figuring out like what time to do each thing and like honestly like just self-care and just taking a step back from everything it can be really really hard and I mean me and Clara are like ninth graders so we won't have to deal with that for like another three years but still just the thought of it's really scary it is um, and you don't really get prepared for it because like elementary to middle school to high school it's all like oh yeah it's the same just a lot harder but then college is just like, ah, you're on your own. Have fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a lot. And I also was working. So I, I didn't have um, money. So I had loans. And um, part of that loan financial aid package from the school was to do work study. And so I was working um, the max amount, which is 20 hours a week to, to you know, get that requirement. Um, so with the 20 hours of work study, plus like all the volunteering and leadership things I was doing, plus taking six courses um, a week, it was it was a lot. It was a lot. And I had never had to really deal with any of that. Plus all the things that you mentioned with feeding myself <laughs> and, and figuring all of that. And also, like, you know, you want to like live a life and have fun and stuff, too. So it was all very challenging to adjust to. Yeah, financially, it's going to be really hard to. So I was wondering, like, did scholarships help you with that? Yeah, so I um I had a, a good financial aid package um from my undergrad institution, which came with the scholarship. Um, it came with the work study as well. Um, but pretty early on, it was difficult for me to get scholarships because of my GPA, because it was lower. Um, and so I really relied on that financial aid and work study for for money in in undergrad. In grad school, it was a different story because I started to do better and so I had a lot of scholarships will ask you for like your GPA and letters of rec and stuff and so in grad school and in med school I had all of that to support me and so I was able to secure a decent amount of scholarships through um, grad and med school but for undergrad it was it was more challenging because of my grades yeah a lot like there are a lot like we have a club called CSF at our school the California Scholarship Federation and uh, I was wondering, like, were you part of any of those scholarship clubs in high school? That's a good question. I don't recall that. I don't know if I was. If my school had a chapter, I probably was, but I don't. I don't remember. <laughs> um, and then I kind of wanted to follow up on kind of like the high school thing, like, um, what is a message that you have for high school students? 
who want to have a future in healthcare? I my message is um don't let if that's something that you really want to do like do it um I think a, a lot of people tend to try and like sway people away from a field in healthcare for whatever reason um be it the burnout that we've talked about or um it's very hard and challenging to study for in college and things like that but if you're really passionate about it um and it's something that you really care about my advice is to shadow um shadow physicians shadow physician assistants um nurses talk to people and really try and like get a good understanding of of the options um a lot of times especially if you're in California there are programs that will allow you in the summer to to work in a hospital um and like work with a a doctor and so I recommend like looking into those if you're if you have the financial means or if you can get a scholarship for it. And I also recommend looking into um, summer programming that I know exists as well. I'm blinking on the name of it, but there's summer programming that um, kind of exposes high school students to all the different types of of uh, healthcare jobs that exist through um, different like activities. So every week you you know, you're working with a PT one week and an occupational therapist the next and such. That way you can get exposed to all the different options. You're so like young in your career. And I think it's really good to to have an idea of what you want to do going into the medical field as a whole. But I also think it's important not to not to stay too tunnel visioned on like, I want to be a doctor um, or I want to be a nurse. Um, I, I think it's important to explore all of the options because there are a lot of ways to get your feet wet in healthcare that don't involve either of those two options and they're all very fulfilling. Um, so you just have to kind of use the time to determine what what that is that you're interested in. And also don't be afraid to completely pivot. If if you start shadowing, if you start going down that chain, if you take bio and you're like, oh, man, I'm not interested in this. That's okay too. I will say high school biology is nothing like what you what you take later on but I think if at some point you realize medicine's not for you um, but you still want to make an impact in healthcare look into public health um public health is a really great field and you can often major in it in college which I wish I had done I didn't know that was an option um health policy those kind of things there are a lot of ways to be involved in healthcare that don't invite involve being a provider um so just kind of keep your mind open well, what are some changes that you see in the future of healthcare and what are some changes that you want to see? Mm, um, for one, I want to see better, better care to physicians. Um, I think that, you know, obviously we're overworked, uh, underpaid and especially resident trainee physicians. Um, I think there's a lot that goes into exploiting us. Um, and I think that that can be better to improve our patient care, like I talked about earlier in terms of burnout and time constraints. Um, and I also would love to see an improvement in just like the education that we're providing to medical students. And that's definitely happening. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on medical education right now and in terms of improving it to allow folks to be trained in um, you know, cultural humility and and implicit biases and um, social medicine and, you know, racism and queer health and all these things. And I think that's really important. Um, and, and lastly, I would really love to see an improvement in the, in the inclusivity of the spaces, both for the providers, but, but also for the patients to help improve that representation, like we talked about. As 
um, a question to wrap things up. Is there anything else you would like to add about your experience and something that you would like to share to anyone that's listening out there that um, is wanting to do the same things as you are? One thing that I didn't get too much into, which is interesting because it's usually what uh, I end up just talking about on podcasts, but I didn't get too much into like my path to medical school. So I mentioned graduating from undergrad with that 2.8 GPA overall and that 2.55 undergrad uh, science GPA. And because of that, I had to take a really circuitous route to med school um, in that I needed to figure out a way to improve my GPA to show med schools that I was deserving of a spot in a class to become a doctor. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot to go into with that, but I ended up just looking into post-bac programs and special master's programs and master's programs. Um, and I, I ultimately was accepted to just a master's program. And, and so I ran with that and um, did really well, like we talked about. And then um, I wanted a public health degree a master's of public health degree, but I wasn't sure if I could get into an MD MPH program, like a dual degree program because of my undergrad GPA. So I ended up just doing a master's of public health before med school. Um, and then I eventually applied to med school um, after taking the MCAT and, and I got into med school. Um, I didn't know if I would because of my undergrad GPA, but I knew that I had a strong grad GPA. I did okay enough on the MCAT and I had really great letters of recommendations to support me and so I gave it my best all and so all that to say and and what I talked about on the podcast on the NPR episode is um you know people if you are coming if you end up going to college and you know I want to go to med school and then don't do as well in college as you would hope there is a path forward to medical school there always is despite what you might hear so you might have your pre-med advisors telling you give up which is what I I um you know talked about on NPR you might have uh you might feel discouraged because some of your peers are going straight from med school or straight from undergrad to med school but ultimately your path is all that matters and also being a non-traditional student taking those gap years or those growth years is becoming more and more popular. The average the average entry, entry age for med students now is about 24. So, you know, we have data to support that a lot of people are taking that time off. Um, and so my, my advice basically is don't give up. If medical school is what you want to do, which is all I can talk about because it's all I did. I, I can't talk about, you know, nursing school or anything like that. But if medical school is what you want to do, don't give up. And the same logic can be applied to the other fields, right? So if you want to do nursing or physical therapy or whatever, but your grades aren't where they want to be, or you have some other sort of flag on your application, there's always a way forward. And I think it's just a matter of um, finding it and and doing what works for you to get there. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. I think that's really inspiring. Well, that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed hearing about Sabina's research on queer health and how diversity is key in healthcare. See you next time and remember to keep that medical mindset.